0: Welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. In this edition we're speaking with Anthony Werner, the man who has led Shepherd Walwyn for over 40 years. He took over from the founder, Christopher Shepherd Walwyn, in 1979 when the firm ran out of capital. Anthony invested his own money to keep it going and began publishing books that he felt needed to be published. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with Anthony. He's a man of rare integrity and intelligence Interestingly, if you take a cursory glance at the books he's published, you could be forgiven for thinking he's simply followed an eclectic but somewhat indulgent interest. This would be understandable, but incorrect. But when you begin to read the books, you see that he has a point to all of them, at least to all the ones I've read so far. And that point is to offer the reader a vision and even a route map to create a fairer, juster and happier society. In these two podcasts, we're going to focus first on his work in ethical economics as he describes it, highlighting his near 40-year collaboration with Fred Harrison. We also cover how he personally came to believe in the principles he supports through his authors, and how he appears to have been guided by a series of curiously serendipitous incidents throughout his life, or, as he describes it, being guided out of the blue. In the second podcast, we'll be looking at the other pieces of this amazing jigsaw or tapestry. And looking at how he met spiritual practitioners and internet sensation John Butler and all the other authors. Today though we explore how he came to buy Shepherd Warwin and how he came to focus so much on ethical economics.
1: Well uh, I was working at Oxford University Press and some of us were very bored about what we were given to do and so we were trying to establish something and um, I was, through some mutual arrangement, I was introduced to Christopher Shepherd Warwood, who started the company in uh, 1971, in October 1971. And he'd published his first three books, but then soon realised he'd run out of capital. So he was looking for, looking for somebody who could invest. And I had some money from my family in Sweden so I, I was introduced to him through a mutual friend and um, so that's how I got, became involved and I became originally this is in 1973 I was a sort of 40% shareholder and then in 1979 the company couldn't afford to keep both of us so um, he, he had a family of four and I was a bachelor so I was the only one to whom it was worth saving so I took on the job in 1979, running it from my own and um, so that was really how the whole thing took, took over and then, but of course what, what you bring, the publisher brings is his own values and that's very much, I mean when you think about it, the publisher is the kind of person who allows or disallows any books to be published. I mean they've obviously got to be commercially viable but the choice very much depends on the personality of the publisher.
0: So what would you describe as, as your personality?
1: Well what, what I was very lucky was that when I came from South Africa I was introduced to the School of Economic Science because my father had been very worried about apartheid and, um, he'd been against the, the injustice of that, so from a childhood up, justice had been the sort of an important part of my life. And um, so I, was, I, met, I met somebody who had been in the school and she asked me to help with something which i initially turned down and then she interviewed me and discovered this young man who had just come from South Africa was so passionately interested in economic justice And so she then introduced me to the School of Economic Science and that's how so the two very much came together. And one of the interesting things that arises, we're shown in the economics course, is how ideas circulate into society. You can either draw on true knowledge or on theories, opinions and beliefs and in the realm of economics we're very much involved in the theories, opinions and beliefs and there's relatively little attempt these days, though it's made to appear scientific by using mathematics and so on. Modern economics is out of touch with reality. I mean, it's interesting, after the crash in 2008-9, students at Manchester University set up an organisation which I think they call post-crash economics and uh, they even managed to get a, a deputy governor of the Bank of England to endorse a request of his for, for a change in the economic syllabus at the University of Manchester which was turned down by the professors which you can understand if you're a professor and you think these cheeky youngsters tell you what you're teaching me is wrong. That, that sort of creates a problem but that's the very real difficulty we face in the world today is that what guides economic thinking and economic activity is faulty economics. In fact, one of the interesting books we published with Fred Harrison and uh, Professor Mason Gaffney in America was called The Corruption of Economics which describes that the corruption of economics was a deliberate ploy in America to to divert people's attention away from Henry George.
0: You mentioned just then, you mentioned family in Sweden and you mentioned coming from South Africa, so maybe if we go a little bit further back, did you grow up in in South Africa then? Yes. And so you were born and raised?
1: In South Africa, yes. Right. Went my first degree from Cape Town University. At, I have a law degree from Cape Town. I graduated on a Saturday morning and caught the Union Castle steamship on Saturday afternoon to, to Britain and arrived in England on the 1st of January 1960, which was very convenient for dating.
0: <laughs> and how did you get from the docks to Oxford Press, Oxford University Press?
1: Um, well, uh, my uncle, I had an uh, uncle who met us at Southampton and then I was a pupil to a barrister at the temple for a time. But I just because I was originally going to study and be, become a barrister. But I decided that that wasn't my view, so I, I've changed my degree at Oxford. I'd got a place at Oxford. And I, so I read geography at Oxford, which it, many people regard as a nothing degree and I didn't really work very hard. I did really, I did work hard for my first degree in law but my second degree I, I enjoyed Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> so I merely scraped by with a third of my geography degree. But, but it was interesting, my tutor said to me with your degree I'm not, I don't think he was referring to the third but just geography there are two things possible for you teaching and journalism, so I was scared of kids, so I wasn't going to teach, and so I, they arranged an interview with me with the Sunday Times, and so I went to, do, to see the Sunday Times, and they said, oh well we don't take people straight from university, which I must have known, but anyway, so I was walking back into my college at Oxford, and I was one of those roads where they have a sort of parking in the middle and I was just standing just outside my gate, the college gate and an Oxford University press van, drew up outside the gate, and just like one of those aeroplanes advertising, went through my mind, maybe they've got a job for me. So I just didn't go into the college, I went round to the Oxford University Press, presented my credentials and they said nothing in law, but there's a vacancy in the cartographic department. And I had to admit that such had been my studies of geography that I was racking my brain to think, what (laughs) is (laughs) cartography? Anyway, so I went round there and the boss of the cartographic department was fantasizing about changing all the the colors of maps So, so you'd have pink oceans and blue mountains, this sort of thing. So he told me all about his ideas and then nothing about the job. And then he said at the end, he said, would you like the job? And he said, yes. I said, yes, please. So he said, I'll send you a letter. Well, he forgot. obviously carried on fantasizing and forgot. So after a month when I was starving, I timidly rang up and said, and he said, oh dear boy, I'm so sorry. Come tomorrow. Come on Monday. So that's how I started Oxford University Press. And then I worked with MAPS. And I then worked at uh, Maxwell's Pergamon Press for many years, where I translated a huge Polish atlas. And um, that's how. But then after the cartography, things gradually became rather boring. I was made redundant. I went back to Oxford University Press, made redundant there. And so I came to London. And that was through while I was in London and I was introduced to Christopher Shepard Warwin, who just founded the company.
0: And what's the link with the family in, in Sweden?
1: Well, just that, that uh, my father's family, my, my mother's Swedish, my father's half English and half Swedish. My father's family were textile people in Sweden. so They were quite a wealthy family. And um, so that my father, but my father was a victim of the 1930s depression. His parents divorced. And so he came over to England to visit his mother. So his father sort of cut him off. And so his mother obviously got him a job at Savile Road, but in 1935, he was a Swede taking a British job, so he was kicked out. And so they eventually allowed him to come back. But he then um, decided that it wasn't much future for him in England, so he was thinking of emigrating to Australia. And an uncle invited him to lunch, and he said, have you any introductions? So he said, not in Australia, but in South Africa. Uh, he had a connection with the Kalinans, the Kalinan diamond people. And so that's how he became... I'm South African rather than Australian. And so that's how we, so we were, My father went out there and then uh, proposed to my mother who followed. Came out on her own on the boat, brave, brave woman. And so she, that's how they settled in Johannesburg. Wow. That's where I was born.
0: He would have spent about 21 years? 20 years 20 in years South, in, and South then
1: Africa, most exactly.
0: Took the boat to um, yeah. To Southampton.
1: And then I came to Southampton the 1st of July, uh, January of 1960. I've been in England ever since. Wow, fantastic.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that you, you talked about, your, your founding principles um, about economic justice, um, so why don't, we, why don't we move on now to um, the category that you've got listed on your website as ethical economics um, and there's a work of, of Henry George um, John Young with Natural Economics Brian Hodgkinson and of course Fred Harrison yes.
1: um, well I suppose that Fred Harrison was the start of the economics thing that I used to, at the School of Economic Science I used to help, it's a voluntary organisation, I used to help with a bookshop and I was asked to go and pick up some books from the Henry George Foundation in Victoria. And as I was leaving, the lady there in charge said, oh, by the way, there's this young man who's written a book. She knew I was working for a public. But at that stage, I, ha- I owned Shepherd Warwick. And so she knew I was doing that. And that was where she introduced me to the young Fred Harrison, which you maybe have seen the photograph on the back of Power and the Land. He's younger than he is now like me. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember there was, you know, sometimes you just realize something's important. I just remember the was a quiet way she said this and there was a kind of important connection there. So we worked on that book and then we managed to sell a Canadian and a, a, a United States edition of that amazingly. Um, But then nothing much happened till about uh, 1991, 92, when Fred was appointed to run the Henry George Foundation, and he started putting out a series of books called the George's Paradigm. One of which is that book, The Corruption of Economics.
0: And to that moment, then, when the lady says to you, "There's a young man who's written a book," um, and you said that, and you felt there was something about it. Yes. So what was so and part of me, knowing knowing Fred very very briefly, just how intense he still is now, I can't I can't imagine the intensity he must have had as a younger man, because he's still ferocious today,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was. Well, I mean, he can also be very. I mean, he's a brilliant. He's got a brilliant mind. The first time we I actually met him, he came to our office, which we had in. Covent Garden and I shared it with another publisher and I remember that the publisher when he after he'd been there he said I've never met such a brilliant man I mean he's got an amazing I mean he's got incredible skill at cataloguing and so that it digs out the information he's an astonishingly brilliant man um, yes feels very strongly strong, strongly about it and his." um but at the same time there's a very gentle side to him as well and i and
0: i know you we were talking about the the the, the 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 one of the latest works that you've done about um poverty being Unnatural, natural and how involved i was surprised at how involved you you are with some of your books and you said just then that you worked with fred yes. on on his books so what, what what's been your approach to to working with and supporting authors through your career
1: well I think in the case of the power and the land I just read through it and sort of picked out any typing errors and and made something that wasn't very clear to me and I think because parts of it I think are sort of fairly technical and and uh, I think Fred had you know, he was he was an accomplished or writer some some writers some authors are not very good i'm, I'm told that some very famous novelists are, are wonderful storytellers but awful writers and so they need a good editor to to make a good book of their story
0: but fred it was really just more about how to make this readable to a, a i guess an educated some of his books are i mean right. the power in the land is more for an educated reader i would have said
1: well, I think, I think, in the case of the power of the land, the big thing was how to promote it. So we managed to persuade the, the Henry George Foundation to stump up to £3,000 to um, help promote it. So we employed somebody to promote it. But that's very, you know, publishing is a means to make public. And you're very dependent on the newspapers picking up the book. So we managed to get quite a lot of reviews of his book remember one of them said something along the lines of this would uh, this is every every economist ought to read this book and come to think of it so should the treasury, but that was well you know I don't know but the Treasury is dead against the idea yeah i
0: know I know Fred's had interactions somewhat combative yes with um i know when I had interactions with him he would, he was he sent it to to Gordon Brown and Alistair Campbell and people like that, but there's yes. just It's just—it's still even now, a hundred and odd years on, it's still probably even more of a controversial idea, isn't it? The idea of—and
1: yet, when you think about it, they're worried about the north. Uh, You know, they're being left behind. If one had this introduced, you wouldn't need to worry because the north would very naturally have an advantage in that land values are much cheaper up there. So, running a business, you would have far less costs. So it's it's I just understand. I mean, I think next year we have a book called "Natural Law and the Just Society," which is suggesting that there are certain natural laws in economics that you can cannot avoid, and whether you like it or not, they operate. So that Mr. Sunak, our present chancellor has raised the stamp duty to 500. there's a limit the before it takes cuts in to 500,000. Well, the beneficiary is, is the sellers of the house. It's meant to benefit the buyers. But what the sellers know? oh, they, can afford, they don't have to pay. stamp duty, so they up the prices. And this is what they don't understand, that it's, it's just like, you know, if you step into a bath, you know what's going to happen. The water level rises. There's more money available. George Osborne's uh, help to buy things pushed up house prices. So, because they don't understand the law of rent, whatever they do tends to work against what their intention is.
0: Yeah, and, it, and this goes back to the I mean, and in, in, in poverty is not natural. Um, the author brings up the the reference to Churchill and the the example of the bridge across the Thames that's right um and exactly the same principle just that that's the right. you know that the, the toll goes into the house prices on the south bank and that's right um
1: because when you think about it all of us when we're looking for somewhere where to live we work out what the maximum we can afford and uh, you know we've all been through those of us who've bought a house been through that sort of Scenario: what can I afford, and what can I get for this? and in most cases, I remember buying the most recent house where you just sort of stretch yourself and I'd forgotten about stamp duty, so suddenly I gulp I had to find another two thousand
0: hmm.
1: yeah, so I mean that, that is just how it is for everybody
0: and, and Fred's been with you for I guess heading Since on to 1982 cracky so. Getting on for 40 years. Yeah. And, um, and how have you seen his work develop over the years?
1: Well, I, th- I mean, I think originally he was a journalist. When I first met him, he was a journalist. And in fact, he invited him. The Power and the Land took a long time to find that title. In fact, in the process of working with him on the manuscript, we'd be ringing each other more or less every second day and reach the stage, he said, you've got a new title or something like that. Anyway, he invited me to lunch at um, his newspaper office and he said to me, after we'd had lunch, he said, Anthony, what time do you have to be back? And I said, oh, about three. So he looked at his watch and he got up to go and get a cigar. He was a a very high-earning journalist and um, while he was away, I remember falling still and the, the words power in the land sort of dropped dropped into my head. And when I when he came back, I said to him, power in the land, he said, let's go. I mean, it's perfect. I didn't realize that they had that Churchill quote in the front at the time. But it's absolutely perfect and it describes the situation. But it took us something like six months to find that title. Because as you say, Fred has a sort of, there was something about the corruption, the sort of, sort of somewhat negative title and that uh, that's i mean it absolutely sums it up but it's amazing how it just sort of dropped into the mind
0: what do you put that down to sorry what do you put what that down to
1: uh what can you put it down to grace some some uh, Somewhere along the line, some, something popped it into the mind, from, came from, well, it's interesting, it came from out of the blue. Mm. In the same way that it came, maybe they've got a job for me when I went round to Oxford University, came out of the blue. It's an interesting question, what is this blue that things come out of?
0: It is. It is. Because uh, I'm, I'm just getting the impression just how you've been, I don't know whether guided or just a, you know, a series of serendipitous events. Yes. changing your life and and you know if it, i don't know if a greengrocer's van had come around the round yes. the side of <laughs> of your college you know whether you'd be um you know you, i guess you wouldn't we wouldn't be interviewing you for because you were the you know you were the top greengrocer or the most socially just greengrocer in oxfordshire yeah um yeah. but it was you know it just it just feel like and the way that you the way that you showed it was like it came in it came in. That's and that right. that's a description of, of how genius used to be seen, right? You know, okay. today genius is a people, whereas that's not how it used to be. You used to have a, a stroke of genius and it would come from one place which would which was God or, or the blue, yes. which is what you how he described it. But it was well, it was so very I mean, much you,
1: a you can call God the blue out of the blue if you like. Yeah, it's a question how what you describe it.
0: So so you so you, you're working with just to, just to thinking about the economic stuff again now. So you've been working with Fred. Um, who, which other? Are, you know, that's going to get attention with the the school of on the economics school. Yes, the no um,
1: was the Henry George Foundation. Henry
0: George, right? Yes, more or less, yes. And so, how did you meet Brian Hodgkinson?
1: Well, through the School of Economic right. Science, yes.
0: Because he's written quite a lot of books for you now. Yeah, I mean, not he's, for an, you.
1: he's an astonishing man. Uh, he's written a poetry translation of the Bhagavad Gita for the ancient Indian He's uh, done a book of, uh, he's done a complete sort of epic poem of the Second World War. We've only published a bit of that. He's done a three-volume history of um, the advancement of civilization in Western Europe and the Western world. Um, And then his new model of the economy. And, And then a sort of more popular version of that, how the economy really works. In which he makes the interesting point that modern economists still talk of land, labour and capital as the three factors of production, but they never mention land. Then you, you can see here the, the dichotomy that exists in the political sphere between labour and capital, whereas in fact they need to work together. And if, if instead, to, instead of the, the rent going to the landowner, went to the government we wouldn't need taxation. So one of the interesting books we published was called Public Revenue Without Taxation by somebody who used to be in the school and then set up his own economic research uh, foundation. Hmm. So yes there is a body of knowledge out there but it's uh, it's being excluded by, by those who are in power.
0: And what do you put that down to?
1: Well I suppose one can only say vested interest, but if you actually, I mean, what's interesting about that book, uh, Poverty is Not Natural, was thinking about what are the advantages. Well one of the biggest uh, uh, taxpayers is the government, it's, all the, it's the biggest employer. You know, if they, they cut the, if the government only paid tax on the properties they operated they would have a huge, a huge saving in cost and the money could be used in other ways. Same for business, I mean uh, employees, employers, national insurance contributions adds to the cost of employing somebody, something like for 25,000 pounds per person, something like 1,500 pounds extra. This is the f- employers got to find to employ somebody. So you can see why they go to machinery. You replace human beings with machines.
0: Hmm. Thank you for listening to this podcast. In the next one we're going to look at how Anthony bridged economics with broader themes initially through the works of an almost forgotten philosopher Marsilio Ficino. We're also going to dive into how he came to publish so many other unusual works many of which with a deeply spiritual theme. So until then keep reading.